Welcome to Download, where we cover the most interesting technology stories of the week. I'm Jason Snell, and I'm joined as always by Mr. Stephen Hackett. Hi, Stephen. Hello, Jason Snell. Uh, doing a little different kind of download today. Trying some stuff out. Yeah, it's you know. it's a new year, new download is the as the old maybe saying goes. if we like it, and if we don't, we we won't do it this way, and we'll do do something else instead. But you know, never resting, always wondering what's going to go on. We're going to talk about some of the those headlines that we talked about, and then later. Yeah, you heard me. Later, we will be joined by Carolina Milanese and Devendra Hardwar to talk about CES stuff a little bit, TV, smart assistants. And we're also going to talk about stream media, Netflix raising its prices and some other stuff. But uh, before there, we will do some of what we think are the most interesting stories of the week. Little uh, highlights just for you. Uh, we, we used to do a podcast called Subnet, you and I, Stephen, and uh, it's gone now. We did. So we're going to talk about headlines here and see how that goes. <laughs> yeah. A lot of Apple headlines. I, I don't always want the show to be about Apple, but Apple, uh, w- there was a lot of Apple stuff going on this week that we probably should talk about. Um, the battery replacement program last year, uh, there was a lot of skepticism about when Tim Cook mentioned the battery replacement program is one of the reasons why uh, Apple's uh, results were not what uh, what they were expecting they were going to be. And we'll find out the actual results in a, a couple of weeks. Um, but John Gruber, our friend over at Daring Fireball, did what he always does, which is drop news uh, sort of subtly. <laughs> and just mention, oh yeah, yeah, here's something I heard that nobody's reported about, which was that um, Tim Cook apparently, according to John Gruber, told Apple employees that they replaced 11 million batteries under the $29 battery replacement program deal that they offered in 2018. Now, as somebody who knows people in various uh, Apple retail stores, I had already heard that basically the Apple retail stores were swamped with battery replacements, that it was... Uh, an enormous problem actually for staffing and for uh, efficiency at Apple stores because so many people were bringing in those phones. And then I think a lot of us heard as the program ended in December that a lot of people were rushing out to the Apple store in December to get in for the cheaper price right under the wire. And so I, right. I, I wasn't surprised by this at all, but it does have these interesting ramifications, not only potentially that they were doing it at a loss, uh, but the larger implication that this is Apple by trying to avoid a scandal about like slowing down your phone when your battery is bad, educating a big portion of its audience that when your phone slows down, instead of buying a new iPhone, you should just go to the Apple store and get a new battery. Yeah. It's, it's hugely interesting. I mean, anecdotally, so I mean, I'm leading with that. Okay. It seemed like, you know, the people I knew in Apple retail and, and going into the store that, they were throughout the year really busy with the battery replacement program. And I think to your point, that only sped up at the end of the year. I know I had some people in my family being in December is like, Hey, if you haven't done this yet, go ahead and do it. And uh, I think there are a couple interesting things. One was Apple surprised by how many people did it, you know, who actually came in and got their battery replaced. I I would imagine sometime throughout the year, they had an idea of what the number would be. But if you remember a year ago when it started, there was a battery shortage and they had to like ramp up battery production Uh and you would go and get your, basically your place in line. They would call you when the battery came in, you know, eight or nine days later, then you'd go do it. They got that under control in December, at least, at least in my store with my family members, it was come in, you get done an hour and then you leave. So I, I do wonder if the volume of customers was higher than Apple anticipated and how they adjusted for that. Uh, but two, I, for me at least, the, the this number, this 11 million, shows that it was the right decision, that Apple did something 
you know, they, they kind of got caught in this really bad situation, but the way they handled it was the right way because people responded positively to it. You know, 11 million, that's a lot of iPhones mm-hmm. getting uh, cracked open and having batteries put in them. And that's good for the customers. It means that their their phones are back at peak performance. It means they're probably going to get a couple more years out of that phone, which does hurt the sales. But Apple did this knowing what it could potentially do to sales, and it was the right call a year ago when they announced it. And I still think that today that they they handled this as well as they could have. Yeah, when you view the Apple keynote at the developer conference in June. And, and them talking about building phones that last because what they want to do is build a, a essentially a lifelong relationship with a customer. They want people to feel good about buying an iPhone so that when it comes time to buy a new iPhone, they will they will do it happily. And uh, it's hard. I mean, people sometimes this stuff is out of sequence because of the way the, uh, the it all kind of comes out, but. That's why they had that conversation, right? Like, this is all of a kind, which is Apple seeing sales slow down. They had the battery thing. They decided to focus iOS 12 on working better on older models because they know that older models are going to be in uh, use for a lot longer than maybe was the case in the early days of the smartphone. They did all of that uh, to think about this. And, 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 I know I appreciate it too. I do think it is the right thing to do uh, and to do right by your customers. Uh, the fact is, though, that they do need to sell new iPhones, and this is that story yeah. that is a it's a classic thing. If you if you make a product that is the best in what it does and it lasts forever, you'll go out of business. That's the truth of it. I was thinking about this as I was <laughs> follow me here loading my dishwasher the other day, which is mm-hmm. we we got a new dishwasher when we redid our kitchen like eight years ago, and I I thought about it like this is the the challenge which is if you're a maker of a dishwasher um or any appliance like most of the modern appliances are are built to last uh like 10 years and then they die and part of that is because they uh they are built to only really last that long because they want to sell you a new one and then there's also the reality of it is you could make a dishwasher or a refrigerator or washing machine or whatever that lasted for 50 years. But if it cost five times as much as all the rest of them, no one would buy it. And so that's part of it, too, is the buying psychology, which honestly is directly applicable to smartphones, because that's why Apple says things about um, spreading out into monthly plans or offering rebates when you trade in your old phone and things like that, because they're trying to fight this, the issue here, which is that in order to make money, they need to charge more for a phone that they think is appreciably better. But if that's too high a price, people won't pay it. And uh, what I'm saying, Stephen, is that you've got a very old washing machine. <laughs> it, it, it happens. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just so interesting. I mean, I mean, the whole iPhone sales thing, is clearly multi-pronged. If it was just China, that letter wouldn't have suggested that it was other things as well. And you remember that letter, Tim Cook called out the battery replacement program. And all of us were like, you're kind of reaching there, buddy. But <laughs> turns out it was much bigger than people anticipated. Yeah, for sure. I don't know where it goes in the long run, though. Like, I mean, because Apple, yeah. I do believe Apple is committed to making their products work better over time. Uh, and make you want to upgrade because you know because there's something in the upgrade that you want. But this is that push and pull that everybody has to deal with as a as a company, which is you want to make your product last, but you also want to make people buy a new version of your product. Otherwise, you're gonna you're gonna die because nobody's gonna buy your sure. new product. In some ways, that makes the 2019 and probably even more so the 2020 iPhones 
really interesting to me. There's this Wall Street Journal uh, article talking about the uh, what they're calling the 10RS. We're just going to keep adding letters to these phones, I guess. But you know that it would be uh, you know moving to OLED potentially. It would have a dual camera module. You guys talked some about this on Upgrade on Monday. Is that phone going to be able to keep that price point? They're going to be able to shave money off the price point if they do these things. You know, uh, my thought is at least that 2019 has been set for a while for as far as iPhones. That the the cycle on them is very long. So maybe 2020 before we see any major changes that would make people want to upgrade more often or be able to bring the price down or whatever. But I, I think this is going to be a really interesting time seeing these phones and seeing how they're sold. Someone else said this. So I'm just quoting some of it. Maybe, maybe it was you, but this idea, like I really think it's going to happen that you walk into an Apple store and the price you see is the monthly cost, not seven ninety nine, not ten ninety nine, Right. Right. And, and you're seeing that on Apple's website and a few other places. And I think that's how they're going to pitch it because it, it, it wears that, that sticker shock down a little bit. Right. If you see, Oh, well this phone is, I don't know, $25 a month, but this one's $30 a month. Well, in reality, over two years, that's a pretty big price difference, but... But it doesn't feel that... Month to month, it's not too bad. And and they'll also project, based on uh, maybe a two-year or three-year replacement cycle, they'll also start pricing sort of like uh, what they did with the 10R. They'll say, you know, the 10R actually only costs this if you trade in your two-year-old iPhone, your your iPhone uh, 7. Which most people... Are going, I mean, some people are going to hand their phones down, but a lot of people just are going to trade it in, right? So I think that could impact that sort of secondhand iPhone like market a little bit. It'll be interesting to see how that how that plays out. But I think a lot of people are totally fine with that. You know, if they don't, if they buy you know, their partner and then buy new phones together, or maybe they do every other year. But if you got kids in the house, or you know, your mother in law or somebody who's going to get your old phone, that may not be as tempting as it could be for others. Right. Right. But but it is not that different a strategy. It really is sort of like saying, "Hey, we really had a good thing when there were carrier subsidies. When that was the thing, it was really a good a good deal because we got to put a lower price on our phone, and it was hidden. Right. And now they don't have that anymore, so they got to come up with some other way to do it. Also, speaking of the carriers, still do stuff. They don't do the subsidies anymore, but the carriers will put you on a plan for two years, or they will give you a deal if you switch. I mean, there's lots of there's lots of other things happening, and this is this is the case where the market I feel like is going to optimize as much as possible to get the most sales. Right? They'll find a way, even if it is a human psychology kind of thing. Of most people aren't going to spend a thousand dollars on a phone, but they'll spend a certain amount of money a month on it and that'll that'll do it what do you think about the uh another headline that i put in our list here is the apple uh maps is showing up inside DuckDuckGo. uh also tim cook uh wrote a piece about uh, the need for privacy legislation in uh in time this week this seems like a uh apple's reinforcing its story about privacy and personal data, which, as we've talked about before, you know, they've got the upper hand on a lot of their competitors because of their business model. And so it does feel like they're pushing in part because they sense a weakness in their competitors here. I, I, I don't doubt that they believe that 
personal information privacy is important, but it's also right. advantageous to them uh, to do it. The DuckDuckGo yes. thing being an interesting one, because that's a search engine that's not Google. It doesn't do tracking, and they are uh, like a flagship integrator of Apple's, uh, a web version of Apple's map database. Yeah, I find, I find the DuckDuckGo thing really fascinating for a couple of reasons. One, Apple Maps is sort of slowly and, and quietly picking up skills that Google Maps has. So like, it's trivial to embed Google Maps in just about anything, right? Like it's very easy to do. And Apple Maps has not been the way. Apple Maps has been constrained to the iOS and Mac app. And it, it seems like there's a matter of time before Apple Maps just has a website like maps.apple.com and it works just like Google Maps on the internet. I think they need to get there, but this is a good step in that direction to see that data show up in more places. Now, whether or not you know, it's as accurate or as good as Google Maps. That's a separate conversation. But I think it's super fascinating that Apple is spreading and going to DuckDuckGo seems like an obvious like win for both companies. You know, they have like-minded thoughts on privacy and consumer protection. And, you know, you're also not going to see Apple Maps go to Bing or to Google search. Right? It's kind of, if they're going to be in a search engine, this is the one. So I'm, I'm glad to see it, see it out there. It does seem like, um, John Voorhees at Mac Stories reported yesterday that it's it's pretty hit or miss in places, but it'll get better. They're they're always working on it. Yeah, sure. Voice assistants. I wanted with this. Oh this keeps coming up, and so here's another story, which is that Pandora is launching. Why not its own personalized voice assistant on iOS or Android, so that you can say, "Hey, Pandora." Uh, and then tell it what to say. So now, like with the wonderful Samsung Bixby, where Bixby and Amazon uh, or Bixby and Google Assistant live together in a very small room inside your phone on a Samsung phone, uh, they want Pandora's assistant to live on your phone and provide a new way to engage with any app. It's expected, said the chief product officer of Pandora. Um, this is this is it's too much right like this is it feels to me like this voice assistant thing has gone too far like why would you build your own voice assistant is it because nobody will partner with you and so you you know you're forced to i just i don't i don't feel like more fractured voice assistants is Mm -mm. good for anyone it's not and so i think there are a couple things to think about one siri and google assistant are probably not going to play as nicely with Pandora as they will with Apple music and other services. Sure. Right. Like, um, in fact, like the media playback stuff in Siri, even in iOS 12 is not really there yet the way that it could be. The thing that I think about though, is like Pandora is not leading this industry in any metric. Like Spotify is killing them. Apple music is big. Pandora feels like it's, it's struggling in places and they've had some, some business model changes and some layoffs and that sort of thing. I was like, I just don't know if this is what I would be investing in if I were Pandora. Uh, but at the same time, you know, when you can talk to uh, a voice canister and get it to do anything on Spotify or now Apple music and you're not there, you do look kind of even further behind. So I get it. I just, I just don't know if it's the, the first thing I would deal with if I were running Pandora. Yeah, yeah, it's it, what a strange choice to say we're going to introduce our own voice assistant and that, that this is just what's going to happen in apps is that you open an app and then you talk to it. Um, I don't know. It's very strange, very strange. I, I'm I'm skeptical about that use case, but, uh, may, you know, they prioritized it or maybe they had it 
that they were already working on it. I don't know. It's very strange. Very strange. Uh, let's talk about journalism. All right. Hey, how about that? You and I have a history with journalism. We do. This WordPress thing is super interesting to me. Okay. So uh, WordPress, of course, is like the most popular CMS on the internet, more so than Jason's beloved movable type. I'm sorry, Jason. A shocker. Yeah, I know. I, I know. There's <laughs> yeah. not, what you mean? I'm the only person left? No, me and John Gruber, we're the only people left. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The two of you. They've had WordPress.com VIP for a long time, and that powers things like 538 and some CNN stuff, like big like headline-making journalism outlets. But this new uh, initiative, and it's Google and WordPress and Knight and a couple other uh, partners are working to develop a publishing platform for small and medium-sized outlets. It's called. It's going to be called Newspack. Uh, it's it's unclear in reading this, but it, uh, it seems like it's going to be WordPress with like some stuff on top of it for you know local newspapers and outlets. They said even like single topic. You know, so like if you run a big blog, maybe with a big readership, you could use this. And they are basically um, taking applications, and there's going to be a development period through uh, January 2020. And they said the fees after that will be between a thousand and two thousand a month, which, if you're running a site at scale, is is probably pretty reasonable. But they're, they're building this with their applicants, so it's going to be tools and things built into WordPress or on top of WordPress with the input of journalists and editors and you know photographers and all this stuff. And I just think that's really interesting. You know, I have a, I have a place in my heart for content management systems. It's a weird thing to be nerdy about, yeah. but, mm-hmm. uh, but, but, but I am. And a lot of like alt weekly newspapers run on some like pretty archaic stuff. And it could mean if this ends up being a thing that, that is successful and is attractive, that it could give places like alt weekly newspapers uh, like a modern technology stack to build on as opposed to something they've been working on since 2002 or something. So uh, I think it's exciting. And I like that. Unlike the next story with Facebook, like WordPress is just building tools, right? Like that's, that's right. what their business is. They're not a, I mean, they build a publishing platform. They themselves are not a publishing platform. And that's a very important distinction. I think when it comes to news and journalism. Yeah, the idea you, that you're taking something that is already a very popular system and then, uh, trying to build a version of it essentially that is more appropriate for publishing companies. I think I think that's fine. I think that's a it's a good idea. It is fascinating to see how much focus there is on publishing tools for publishing companies. Uh, but you know, back mm-hmm. in the old desktop publishing days, like that was a huge industry, and now we're in in this era, and uh, it is the fact is a lot of publishing companies end up building their own CMSs, and I can tell you, it is uh, never a good investment. And I say that as somebody who worked at a company that built multiple CMSs itself. Uh, it was right. never a good investment. You have a huge, you are not a development firm. You're not a software company. And suddenly you have a huge development group that's writing software that is only going to be deployed internally. And it is, and I, you know, our developers were great at IDG. I like them a lot, but like, that's not the business that that company should have been in. We should have been in the business of publishing and writing kind of connector code and writing, you know, website front end, like design stuff with, you know, having web designers, if you're a web publisher, kind of makes more sense, but building the CMS. And yet there was this whole fantasy in the publishing industry that everybody was going to be, do you remember the word platisher? 
that was that was bandied about uh oh no that's terrible terrible neologism but that was the idea is like publishers are now platform builders and that everybody who's a publisher is going to have a cms and then they're going to sell their cms because you know completely skipping over the fact that productizing a home-built content management system to be uh to work for other people is a very bad idea and i say that as somebody who one of the cms's i used at macworld for a while was basically an open source version of the uh, cms built for uh for was it slate or salon i don't even remember now but it was somebody else's cms and you are confronted by all of the assumptions that they made about their internal cms uh that had to be kind of modified in order to take it somewhere else it's like it's just a bad idea what i'm saying is it's a it's a waste of money it's it's a little bit like steve jobs saying that the solution for every newspaper was going to be to hire a whole set of ios developers so that they could write their own ios app instead of just building something like ibooks for newspapers and magazines they they had to be developers and they're not developers so uh that's a long way of saying i think this is good because it makes much more sense for a company that is really invested in being a publishing platform to build tools for newspapers because and magazines and whoever else because Mm -hmm. they don't they should not be building like really just talk them off the ledge do not build your own cms get good at attaching to existing services get good at working with wordpress or this new news pack thing and uh move on with your life and don't you're you're not a publisher or you're you're not a platform you're a publisher right i mean i think there are cases like i you know at relay we built an our own cms and own it but we're so specific but a lot of a lot of like publishers kind of need the same types of tools and so i think this sort of thing uh, makes a lot of sense. Let me just say, five, five or ten years from now, I mean, somebody's going to build a really great uh, podcast network CMS. The problem is there are are so few podcast networks. There's not there's no right. mo- the, not much of a business in it, so you're kind of stuck with it, right? Um, but which but, is which is why, to your earlier point, we don't view we view it as an internal product, and we're not building it to like sell it as a product sure. at any point. I mean, that could change, but at this point, because there's no one out there, right? It's like it's like me and you and a few other like Leo and a few other people and most of us have our own yeah solutions. and then NPR so, and and PRX and all of those guys who, yeah who but they're going they want to track everybody so yeah. forget them yep, yep. Uh, I'm gonna bang my head into the wall for a second okay. and talk about Facebook Facebook uh, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna read this headline doing more to support local news on the Facebook mm-hmm. for media blog mm-hmm. yep sounds good sounds uh, good tell me more yeah. So over the next three years, Facebook will be investing $300 million into news programs, media partnerships, and content. And it's it's broken down. Um, Report for America uh, is going to be hiring 1,000 journalists in local newsrooms. Uh, Knight, which we talked about earlier, is getting a million-dollar investment to uh, work on news innovation and technology, which like maybe those two things are kind of linked. I don't know if that uh, involves the WordPress thing or not. And then backing local media association, uh, American journalism project, like some good nonprofits and other organizations who do work in like journalistic entities, like hiring and training journalists, uh, supporting them, giving them tools. Mm-hmm. All that is like, so far I'm fine with all of that. Like I, that's great. These organizations should be funded. They're doing important work to keep uh, press in America free and, uh, thriving where i struggled to take this at face value is that last time facebook meddled in journalism a bunch of places hired video people and all of them just got fired like across the industry and and publishers 
got taken for a ride by Facebook saying, hey, create this content just for us. It'll get shared really widely. You can make a bunch of money. And basically none of that happened. Now, as far as I know, this money doesn't come with any strings of like, oh, but these journalists only have to post on Facebook. Like this is not what happened last time. But what happened last time, I think, left such a bad taste in everyone's mouth like Facebook really has to prove that all this is, is like funding journalism projects across the United States and nothing else. Like don't require anything of them. Don't promise anything of them from your platform. Like if you want to fund this stuff, that's great. But when Facebook starts controlling who sees what stories, that's when they always get it wrong. Yeah. Also, I feel like they, is it, I mean, it's Facebook didn't destroy the news media, but it didn't help. Uh, and so this mm-hmm. does feel a little bit like, yeah, we've got all the money. We're going to give a little tiny bit of money to you, pat, you know, pat the journalists on the head kind of thing. It's like, okay, you know, great. But uh, it does also feel like, um, you know, it, the the local factory that dumps toxic waste into the river, but also sponsors the local Little League team. <laughs> it's like, okay, thanks for supporting right. our community while you destroy it. <laughs> Okay. Great. Great. Yeah. Good job. And and I would say that that's unfair of us to view Facebook in that light, but they've proven that they deserve that and more. Like their track record is so bad. So hopefully this is the beginning of a turnaround. I want to be optimistic about this, but they need to prove to everyone that they can sponsor this sort of project. The money will be there and be sustainable and they're not going to do something silly or bad on the back end. All right. Well, those are some of the stories that we were watching this week. There are a couple more we want to discuss with our guests. We're going to talk about CES. We're going to talk about streaming news as well with Devendra Hardawar and Carolina Milanese. And right after I tell you about our first sponsor. This episode of Download is brought to you by Pingdom, the company that makes website performance monitoring super easy. Everybody loves a fast website and Pingdom is helping keep your favorite sites online. Whether it's Netflix, Amazon, Spotify, Twitter, BuzzFeed, Slack, the list goes on. My blog, my podcast network also. These are just the few of the companies who trust Pingdom to take care of their website monitoring. It can be pretty complicated, but you can monitor any site transaction with Pingdom. So it's not just, did my site stay up? It's, can users register for a new account? Can people log in? Can people check out? Can people give me money? Your site could be up, but broken. How are you going to know? And the answer is Pingdom. Pingdom cares about your users having the smoothest site experience possible, and they want you to know when disaster strikes, because computers will betray you. They will. And Pingdom is there to let you know about that betrayal. Super easy to get started. All Pingdom needs is the URL of your site. They take care of the rest. That's it. Pingdom.com slash RelayFM is where you need to go right now. You can have a 14-day free trial. Two weeks where Pingdom will check your site. No credit card required. Free. Absolutely free. And when you sign up for Pingdom, use code DOWNLOAD at checkout, and you'll get 30% off your first invoice. Thank you to Pingdom for supporting Download and all of RelayFM. Okay, let's move on and talk to our wonderful guests. I'm going to introduce them now, uh, a, a frequent guest on Download and back again. Uh, these are the survivors of CES, by the way. That's why I like to describe it. Carolina Milanese from Creative Strategies. Hello. Hello. It's good to have you here. Thank you. I'm glad to be alive after CES. I'm glad you made it back. <laughs> I'm glad you made it back. And uh, from Engadget, Devinder Hardawar. Hello. Hello. Happy to be back. It's good to have you here. Now, you, yeah. you also have a... Uh, 
you also have a, a young child in your house. So yes, is CES like a relief? Not really. I, I honestly prefer the baby time. Like as crazy as that can be, it is not as bad as being up till 3 a.m. <laughs> writing a ton of embargoes. So yeah, I'm happy to be home and with the crying baby. Yeah, I, I, that's the right answer. That is the answer I predicted is, <laughs> is crying baby way better than uh, Vegas. Anyway, uh, let's talk about CES. We did a show about CES last week, but last week's show was like CES is viewed from afar from people who did not have to go to CES. And I, I want with a little bit of distance, and this is literal distance of having <laughs> gone and come back, and also just the time distance to look at CES. Uh, we got a, a bit of un- kind of unpleasant feedback. So I was like, why do you even cover CES? Somebody said, and it's like, well, you know, there's a lot in the tech world that goes on there. I, I view it with a cynical eye because uh, yeah. a lot of that stuff never doesn't exist and it's snake oil and it's silly, but there's also... It's, actually, it's more relevant than ever, but it's still like, yeah, a slog of crap to run through. So so tell me about that. What what do you... Why, why is CES more relevant than ever, Devendra? A couple of things. I think, um, you know, now that the whole 4K HDR uh, TV industry is kind of up and running and it took a, a couple of years for that to happen, now they're getting on 8K... And they're getting on new TV technologies. Uh, AK was a big topic this year. I'm not a huge fan of it. Uh, I saw a couple uh, TVs back at IFA. Uh, that was in like September, which Samsung and uh, LG showed off some of their prototypes. It looks really good. It's fine. The content isn't here yet. So it's not quite snake oil, but it's definitely like, who needs this? Nobody really, at least not for 10 years. Uh, but we did see some other cool new stuff. Like there, there, there's new TV technology, like micro LED, which I'm really excited by. We saw OLEDs that can actually roll now finally and that's yeah. gonna be a shipping tv from lg so that's cool and just something we've never seen before and there were a ton of laptops and a ton of like new pcs uh because nvidia showed off uh their new rtx mobile gpus which are a huge deal for the entire industry so you know th- there's some big stuff aside from the snake oil and the like bluster and marketing stuff i do wonder about the TV stuff, in, just in the sense that 4K and HDR, um, as somebody with a 4K HDR TV, like mm-hmm. the content is very slowly coming out for that yeah. and even so but it's, it's there right yeah and yeah but it does it's exist it's a worthy investment now it does exist yeah. although you know again like no tv channels traditional channels <laughs> are in 4k so That's you fine. know unless you yeah. want your netflix you know and things like that but like even hbo they've got an over-the-top service but because i think because they're on traditional formats as well they don't want to kind of overdo it like say the real good format is streaming right when they've got these deals with all of their cable partners and so you know it's spotty and then for really real quality you have to get a disc and how many people are buying a 4k blu-ray disc and a player to to go with it and then you talk about 8k and i'm like oh my god like yeah i just i such a waste of time that that right like i get why there are arguments for it if you're a tv manufacturer like you're trying to get people to buy something else but it it seems and knowing people in the special effects industry i also have to say like Uh 4k like major motion pictures the the effects are not always rendered at 4k right like it's it's not most films aren't finished in 4k even if they're shot in 4k the digital intermediary is usually 2k right right because that's that's all we can work with so yeah there is no no place for for 8K for a long, long time. Yeah. I actually like the the Samsung kind of build as big as you want TV. Yeah, as I the micro LED. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, but, but more the idea that, I mean, 
how big can this thing get, right? I, yeah. I, ne- I need to move out of my house to fit it in. But the idea <laughs> that you could actually, and, and content obviously will be a problem, how are you going to be able to do it? But, you know, over time, the idea of saying, okay, I build my 75 inch TV in my main room. And then, you know, I want to go to bed and binge walk and I take a panel and I take it to my bedroom <laughs> instead of taking my tablet, you know, and also the idea that we're going to have more and more screens around us, right? And mm-hmm. so m- blending this idea between the TV and furniture or you know, accents so that you have these screens that become also part of your wall decor and stuff. I think it's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, from a content perspective, how you render, you know, big and small and weird shape as well, because some of them were like long and narrow. All of that is to be seen, but I like conceptually where this is going mm-hmm. yeah screens are getting bigger and i'm a big fan of projectors and that's how i've gotten like oh, a yes. over 100 inch image in my living room but that's it's kind of tough to set up it's kind of tough to like figure all that stuff out yeah so just having these panels that you can basically like uh you know like legos just piece yeah. together to have something big that's really cool also it gets us to the back to the future you know reality <laughs> where you can be watching like four different shows at once um at so once, you, yes. you could do a lot of different things with this it's very like customizable i find myself missing the uh the i had a tv at one point that had picture in picture and I, and and it's funny that technology kind of went away from that because of the complexity <laughs> of like having multiple tuners and streaming and all of that and every now and then i had that same thought which is i've got this enormous uh 4k hdr tv and there are two sporting events or whatever that are on simultaneously and it it's just like nope i don't know how to how to handle that get out your ipad which just it seems a little bit silly but um it's weird how how you know the features of tvs keep kind of like shifting because they're trying to find the things that that, that are technically possible that are going to appeal to the most people that they can market um do you both have any thoughts about uh, one of the conversations that came out of ces this week was that conversation with uh with the the ceo of vizio not directly related to ces but the idea that uh i think neelay patel at the verge had this on on his podcast that uh tv manufacturers also have sort of changed the game in terms of monetization of their product by looking at post-purchase revenue as a big part of how you uh, of how you make money as a TV manufacturer, which gave a lot of people the creeps because it's the idea that well we really don't make money selling you the TV we make money on observing you watch the TV and selling your data, especially for a brand like Vizio, which is so like I'm sure their margins are just super thin because they make really high quality but really cheap TVs, and you know I assume TCL is doing the same thing. It's it's kind of an inevitability in that you know this is where we are. I don't think it's. Uh, complete data armageddon uh, i think a lot of the reports were that you know oh man they're stealing everything you're doing and selling it to all these marketers um there's probably some of that but the way i saw those comments too was like they're relying on things like um you know all the services they build into the tvs like all the things that let you rent through various apps i they must be making some sort of cut from those things uh but i'm not sure how those plans work out I, if having the data means that i get more appropriate ads while right. I'm watching something, I'm all for it, to be honest with you, because especially you'll you'll see when your kid grows up. Mm-hmm. We are at that age <laughs> where, you know, we allow, we we let our daughter see some PG thirteen movies because we know they're okay. Um 
but the ads around it are not. <laughs> you know, you, like I don't want to have to explain what, what Viagra is to an eleven-year-old. You know, there, yeah. and so the idea that you have my viewing habits and and you see um, even maybe who is you know by way of profiling the the viewer and so forth, and you get more targeted advertising. I'm all for it. One of the things that I really like about um, this, and Devendra touched on this a little bit, um, well, you both did, is is new tech, which is, you know, a lot of the stuff that people look to CES for are like products, and we roll our eyes sometimes when they show us stuff that is not a real product. I, I really reserve my heaviest eye roll for the products that they're in sister real, but we know are not real. <laughs> but I really like it when the TV makers, for example, say, here's where display technology is going, like the, the micro LED stuff. Um, we The roll-up, it does steal the thunder of like that LG roll-up TV, which, I mean, they've been like taunting us with that for yeah. years now, and now it's a real product. But I like the idea of looking at where they're going with their display technology and the micro LED stuff really does look interesting and that you might actually have this uh, you know moment down the road here where where finally we have the sort of science fictional like the walls of your home or a display kind of stuff uh, and I, I like I like that in, in CS was there anything else um, in terms of sort of like future tech that was being talked about at CES that struck either of you there's I mean there there's a lot of pushes right I think um, Google had a huge presence. Uh, at, right in front of the convention center, we have our trailer where, where like all of Engadget just gets together and works. Right, and then right there, um, Google had this huge like I don't know. It's it, it was almost like an, a theme park ride type thing. Was like it? Yeah. Were, but yeah, people were lining up to go big in. Big playground for grown-ups. Big playground, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. And Google, you know, ads were everywhere. Google Assistant was everywhere. This definitely seemed like the CES where these companies are fighting to get those partnerships. So Google really wanted to talk to everybody. But meanwhile, Amazon wasn't I, they didn't have much of a presence there uh in person but every day i would get emails from my amazon people's like here are the 30 devices that were announced with alexa yeah. integration every day so it's like this is it this is the fight for digital assistance basically uh meanwhile yeah we didn't didn't hear much from siri or HomeKit or cortana so it seems like it's really just alexa versus google assistant at this point well, I think that the story for Apple was really about AirPlay and, and what they're doing as yeah. far as TVs, rubber. You did have a few announcements around HomeKit versus Siri. So, you know, there's, they're, they're moving, um, but very slowly. And I was talking to some of their startups. Um, for me, the, the most exciting part of, of CES was the Eureka Park and walking around and seeing all the different countries, um, showing their startups. And I, I had to go to the main convention center because I had a meeting, but I wouldn't have otherwise gone. <laughs> I spent most of my time at the Sands and uh, at, at the Venetian in general, mm. both for meetings and, and walking around. Um, but what was interesting was a lot of people uh, mentioned in conversations that uh, now is a bit easier to develop for HomeKit. So that's definitely on their radar now versus a year ago where they were not even considering and it was about Alexa and Google and that was it. Yeah, Apple had that changeover where it used to require like like an actual like hardware authentication chip and apparently that yes. was like difficult and Non-starter. expensive and, <laughs> and slow to do and now they've moved to the software model and uh Speaking of the Verge, they had another interview with uh, the the CEO of August Locks, and mm-hmm. 
he was talking about this, like it used to be really hard to integrate with this and they're all really different from each other. But something I found interesting this year and in, in that interview highlighted it was a lot of these products are integrating, you know, more than just one assistant, right? They both have Google and Amazon and some of them, especially the home stuff has HomeKit as well now too. And yeah. it feels like those, those days before like, oh, I'd really like that smart lock or this light, but it doesn't work with the voice canister I have. This stuff is becoming more interoperable. And that that's exciting to someone out here in the market who is slowly filling their house with Internet of Things devices. Yeah, I agree. I, I think nobody can run the risk of, of locking you into one only choice, especially so earlier on in the market. Consumers haven't figured out what, you know, they might be, they might have an inkling as far as who they want. But in the home and outside the home is still very open. It's still very complex because Alexa is not really outside the home yet because I don't count the, the apps and some of the experiences you have on, on the smartphones just because they're not that straightforward. Um, and Google can control both, but is stronger outside through the smartphone. So, you know, I think that the battle is so still open that they have to be smart. And then you look at, you know, somebody like Samsung, that is still trying to sell Bixby. Uh, and, and now for their TVs, they're allowing you to control the TVs with, uh, an Echo or uh, a Google Home. And they have to, right? Because the, I mean, it's not like you're going to go to the store and say, like, ah, no, I'm not going to buy a Samsung TV for, you know, $2,000 because it has Bixby. Bixby is still native. And so it gives them other visibility as far as what you do with your TV, but then choice is what they have to guarantee. Mm-hmm. Like it's uh, it's confusing in this world of virtual assistants, but it's honestly, it's still much better than what it used to be for smart home stuff, right? Because then it was like, uh, what, Zigbee? in z-wave and all all those stupid like all the like protocols Mm -hmm. that were so unuser friendly and really hard to like determine how they all interoperated so this is the next stage of a lot of that stuff so it's a virtual assistant handling a lot of the smart home stuff and i think that's at least progress even though it's still kind of confusing any other big uh things when you think about ces with that distance the Good, nice to have distance from CES. So uh, good. At other, other, Carolina, anything strike you as another kind of big trend, something uh, that you noted from Vegas? One thing that relates to a pet peeve I have that I wrote about um, yesterday for Tech Pinions, which is uh, as we're talking about digital assistant, everything in the home becomes connected and I think that the big trend is not just the battle between the assistant, but generally trying and putting these assistants in as many things as you possibly can to create more habit, more, you know, muscle memory, uh, for us normal human beings of counting on these things to be all around it. But then you have the picture of that connected home. Um, especially during the LG, uh, and I don't, I don't want to pick on them, but it was very obvious in their beautiful video of these smart appliances and, you know, where I think that the business idea that they have is similar to what we were discussing on TVs, right? So all these things now have sensors, so they're going to know more. And so they, you know, the home as a service after the PC as a service, I'm sure is going to be a thing. Um, but they paint this idyllic picture of 
my fridge being self-sustained and self-diagnosing and all goodness that is going to come from this intelligence without me having to do anything when it's not going to happen until you have all the business ties that allow for that to happen. So the technology is there. My, my fridge can self, self-diagnose, right? Can tell mm-hmm. me if I have a leak. But then the, the, who they call? Is my insurance going to cover it? You know, how I'm going to pay for it? There's a lot, there's a lot of data that they need to have from me. So, mm-mm whether or not I have an insurance uh, in my credit card details, uh, where I live, where, you know, who my prefer, I don't know, maintenance group is or whatever. And then they have to pull it all together. And if something goes wrong, who do I blame? You know, why do I, they only talk about the upside of, you know, we're doing all these beautiful things when you send me a, an incompetent person to you know, fix my fridge and it doesn't work. And I blame you because you are the one who initiated the whole transaction. So this idea that there's a lot of good, in my opinion, that the connected home can deliver today without painting that beautiful pictures that is probably not just five years down the road, but also very different from market to market because of a market dynamic that you have. And I just think that they're setting expectations so high to then go in and disappoint the buyer. Yeah, they tend to do that, don't they? Like, I think it's when it comes to new tech, a lot of these companies tend to oversell and overhype. So it seems like the only uh, the only logical response is disappointment. So maybe that's also <laughs> partially why we start to like, you know, uh, regret or, you know, uh, I think kind of fear going to CS because we know we're just going to be bombarded with a lot of this crap. Uh, we saw a lot of that with uh, like home robots once again. Right. That, that was a big thing last year. Still some of the main appearance this year. Um, you know, who, who knows how long a lot of those things will take. Uh, at uh, from Samsung, we saw a couple cool prototypes of you know potentially home butler type things, and this uh, this like exoskeleton that could help people uh, who have trouble walking move around and you know lift things. So we're seeing a lot of like cool implementations of things like that. But every time they bring out like this one robot that's gonna like you know take care of your kids and make you dinner and everything, uh, I can't I can't quite buy that. Although I would sign straight away if it was true. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Devendra, before we move on from CES at last, at long last, uh, any other big picture stuff that struck you that you think was uh, interesting this year at CES? I think um, the other thing, too, is like AMD made some really interesting announcements. So we're getting you know re- into the nitty gritty of PC hardware here. Yeah. Uh, but they announced a new high-end video card, the Radeon 7 which is going to compete with the stuff NVIDIA uh, announced last year. So that's it's kind of cool to see AMD and NVIDIA kind of going toe-to-toe again. And also Intel they had a bunch of news, right? They, they announced pretty much the rest of their lineup for this year. And we're finally going to see the 10 nanometer Intel CPUs. Um, so a lot of this stuff, uh, you know, we think PC hardware has gotten kind of boring lately. But I think a lot of this stuff is going to lead to thinner, lighter machines and much more capable ones, too. Um, you know, in AMD's new laptop CPUs will have some Zen uh, graphics hardware in there, so they could play some decent casual games. And even Intel says their upcoming integrated graphics will pack in over a teraflop worth of power. So that could mean a lot of things. 
but they did show off Tekken 7 running on an ultra portable uh, on stage. I couldn't really tell how well it was running, but it was running. So that's something. All right. Well, uh, yeah, let's not forget there's other stuff other than TVs and smart home assistants at CES, I mm-hmm. guess. We didn't even talk about cars. <laughs> there's also like a whole show floor full of cars. There's That's the thing about CES is it's like eight trade shows happening simultaneously. Mm-hmm. At this point. In, in layers in the same uh, complex and then all the hotels. And it's just, yeah. it's enormous. Eight trade shows, but no sex toys, apparently. Yeah. Uh, that's its band. We, it's, we, uh, we talked about that last week that that was that was uh give 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 it an award and then say oh no we actually can't give you an award uh like why did yeah that was an own goal a lot of own goals in the tech industry these days um speaking of which i i there i want to talk about uh another thing related to streaming uh tech uh but before we do that let me take a break this episode of download is brought to you by an interesting sponsor it's detroit mercy law when you think about the future you probably think of exciting innovations and you'd be right to do that the future is built on new ideas but along with innovation comes patent filings trademarks copyrights and yes stolen trade secrets if you've ever considered learning more about intellectual property law now is your chance to explore it you can earn a non-jd certificate in law from detroit mercy law completely online it's designed to help working professionals expand their practical knowledge of legal topics such as patents trademarks copyrights and trade secrets these are areas that are becoming more and more essential in today's evolving job markets it's a great chance to learn about intellectual property law and the legal system without investing in a traditional law degree and you can do it in less than a year if you want to learn how to legally protect your innovation and brand be able to identify risks against your trademarks inventions data and trade secrets or learn how to effectively work with lawyers and legal staff Go to DetroitMercyLaw.com slash certificate right now to learn more or apply today. That's DetroitMercyLaw.com slash certificate. Thank you to Detroit Mercy Law for supporting Download and all of Relay FM. All right. Uh, one last thing I want to talk about, streaming news that happened this week. Um, the big one for me, and, and I definitely want to get uh, both of your take on this, um, is Netflix raising prices for everybody again? Um, mm-hmm. they, this, the, this is a company that is uh, generating a lot of original material. They are spending a lot of money on it. They are going deeper and deeper into long-term debt, actually, because they know that they need to basically cement themselves in as a must-have service for everybody in the world, basically. Um, but that means they're raising prices again too. And, and, uh, you know, all of their, all of their tiers are going up by a couple of bucks, I think a month. And, uh, you know, I, I just, I, I want to do a little check-in cause I think this is a moment that everybody who's got Netflix is like, wow, I'm paying what for Netflix? Uh, and maybe it's a good deal and maybe it's not, but Netflix sort of is bubbling along in the background. And I had forgotten how much I was paying every month for Netflix right, until right. I saw what I was going to be paying in a couple of months. Uh, Devendra, what do you think about the, the, the price jump at Netflix? I, I'm totally fine with it. I can't, uh, <laughs> like, it's I, an I outrage. Oh no, it's fine. It's, no, I can't, I can't deal with the outrage because it's like, uh, I remember how much I used to pay for cable and everything like uh, the amount of value i get from netflix every day 
Uh, I would gladly yeah, don't tell Netflix, but I would gladly play you know pay a lot more. It, it's basically what a cable subscriber pays, or at least traditionally paid for HBO, right? It's like yeah, in, in the HBO, fifteen dollar range kind of thing, or yeah. even for like just the basic channels. That's yeah. basically used to pay like ten to fifteen bucks. Um, yeah, it's a great deal. So it stinks that the price is definitely going higher. I don't think it's like it's not making it unaffordable to people who already have Netflix. It's it's the price of another coffee, guys. Like uh, I, I do think like if they announced a ten dollar price hike all at once that may be too much and at that point we can question what they're doing really uh we also know they're investing a ton in original content and probably over investing and you know uh, i don't want netflix to fall apart as a business so i'm totally fine paying a little for it uh yeah (laughs) i have no issue with that what they're doing is building a a catalog because they know and this is a related story is of course nbc universal which is owned by comcast announced this week the their plans for their streaming service which will be in early 2020 Um, so not too long after the disney service that's going to launch this fall the warner media service that's going to launch this fall the apple service that's going to launch this year right like this is Netflix knows that all, especially of the um, the companies that have uh, that are suppliers of content and ca- back catalog content, like they're starting their own thing. Once um, NBC Universal has its own streaming service, uh, presumably Friends, you know, and or that's Warner, right? Or what is it? Uh, uh, the Office, which is one the of the Office, top yeah, ones, probably. which is which is NBCU all all in, like. Warner Media will eventually take Friends back. NBCU will eventually take The Office back. Netflix will be left with nothing but its originals. And that's why it's spending so much money, right? It's because it, it knows everybody else wants to beat it at its own game. So it's got to try to try to fortify itself. It's also it's a game of media chicken, basically, because I don't <laughs> I, I don't think NBC launching their own service uh, is, is going to really amount to much. Uh, it's this stuff is coming way too late. Um I look at like CBS All Access, which is a problematic service for many reasons, uh, mainly because I don't think you really get much aside from great Star Trek. Uh, you get Star Trek Discovery, which is very good, uh, and you get the good fight. But really, what else? What else is going on in CBS that people really want to subscribe to and watch? They've got more coming, but they launch the service yeah. before they have the content. Other than CBS reruns, I did watch a whole season yeah. of Survivor on there, but that was just an oh, accident. Boy. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. That, yeah, you, your hand <laughs> just slipped on the remote there. Um, but I've talked to a lot of like Star Trek fans who refuse to pay. You know that is it ten dollars a month or so. Uh, it's like between eight to ten, I think ten without ads. But people who would normally, you know, die for Star Trek content are refusing to pay for the service. So at that point, who are you? Who are you really serving? Right. By keeping this really, you know, a great show, a genuinely good show, uh, cordoned off on this thing that not many people want to pay for. I don't know. And what what is NBC going to have? Uh, Disney at least has like all their franchises, right. so they'll be fine. Uh, I don't know how how many of these other services can you know survive this sort of thing. Right, that's that's going to be a big test, right? Is if Warner Media decides that they they are going to do the I don't know Harry Potter TV show or something like that. <laughs> like, will that be enough to get Harry Potter fans to pay for a service? And that's the eventually when you're paying for five services, that calculation starts to break down. I think. Yeah, that's where I got to. Is it's not the extra two dollars. I'm a sucker because I'm on the thirteen ninety nine at the moment on Netflix just yeah. because I was traveling one day and I wanted to download stuff and i forgot i'd already downloaded somewhere else i have a 4k hdr tv so i'm paying for it (laughs) right (laughs) and so um it's not the two dollars for netflix i'm happy to pay that i see it as a contribution to the content that they're, they're creating um but 
it made me question everything else I'm paying for because I, when it was, you know, seven ninety nine or whatever it was when the years ago, um, you kind of like to your point is a coffee, right? I'm, I'm not going to think about it that way, but I'm still paying for cable. I haven't cut the cord yet. And so now I'm like, okay, so I have Fire TV, I have this, I have, you know, how many things I'm actually <laughs> paying for, and a lot of it, there's overlap, right? So I, I might do this at the weekend and sit down and kind of look at, uh, you know, is it worth just cutting the cord and getting broadband? But that's the big thing, and I think we discussed this once before on, on the show mm-hmm. that you know, for a lot of people that rely on high speed internet, like I, you know, I have a, a gigabyte coming to, to the home office. I, you, you know, if it's bundled in, you don't see it. If you try and get away from the TV, then is when they really, really skyrocket their prices and make you pay for it. So, it, yeah, I will have to do some math and, and figure it out. But I, I agree with uh with what was said that the content that you're getting uh, from Netflix is still worthwhile, the extra $2. It'd be interesting to see what happens when, when Apple comes in, um, you know, being a, um, an Apple home when it comes to devices that we mostly use, kid and so forth. Um, it'd be interesting to see what, what we, we will decide to do. Uh, the other uh, stories in the streaming area that I want to mention is just that this week we had this uh kind of like you could see the whole thing coming it was like watching a car crash in slow motion <laughs> i mentioned an, a, a bit of an own goal in the tech industry this is what i was talking about roku had somebody on their twitter oh. support staff who was oh, asked about Infowars and said oh yeah there's a channel for Infowars." um and uh then of course that it got the attention of everybody else who was like well wait a second everybody else banned Infowars for violating various terms of service yeah, and because channel. it's very bad why is roku leaning into this and it turned out that that wasn't quite what happened and this was like another Infowars channel that had been added later uh so it was more recent and people weren't paying attention but then everybody got angry and you know it was one of those things where the story first broke in the morning and i said i believe the actual words i used were uh roku will pull it in three two one <laughs> like it was going to be that <laughs> and by the end of the day they said you know basically it was like oh we, we discovered it violates our yeah. terms of service yeah you think and it Who was and it was over but this is i mean this is the ongoing challenge with these platforms is they do they do have to do some you know they have to do some curation they can't just be completely yeah. laissez-faire about it and 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 this kind of stuff is going to come up uh repeatedly because you know roku and amazon and apple might not want to be gatekeepers but they're gatekeepers they're like they are and it, this is going to keep happening um i don't know i don't know what there what lesson there is to learn from it other than roku should have learned it several months ago maybe yeah <laughs> like look at what everyone else is doing see what's happening uh i like roku as a company but man this is just completely boneheaded <laughs> yeah i think i mean and probably it's in the end it's like bad training in a couple of places that led yeah. to this exploding and that it, it was totally unnecessary that they should have been better about looking at what was getting added to their catalog and certainly their uh their helpful support people should have been trained to not answer questions about uh 
about when Infowars is going to be available on their platform, right? Like, don't, don't oh, even boy. talk about it that. It also shows the, the complexity of where content is going, right? Because uh, we also had YouTube this week um, saying that they're not going to uh, show any dangerous stunts anymore right. uh, as you have more and more people driving with a blindfold, um, which says more <laughs> about the state of humanity than not the state of content, to be honest with you. And the power uh-huh. and, the, and the cultural... I, I think underreported the cultural impact that Netflix really does have. Very true. If you combined the bird box driving while blindfolded with the Marie Kondo, everybody's yes. throwing out everybody's their stuff. Everybody's up. <laughs> uh, like, I, I saw several people who were like, I don't even know who this person is. Why is everybody talking about her? And the answer is because she has a show on Netflix. That's why Netflix yeah. is that powerful. And I think maybe people don't quite realize that like everybody sees it when something new comes on Netflix. It can have that power. So, but you're right that like, that that led to these bird box driving things and that led to YouTube having to step in and say we we're gonna we're gonna not let you post videos where you're doing dangerous stuff <laughs> that endangers yourself and other people because it, it would be bad I'm definitely worrying about the state of humanity right because what we're yeah. facing a <laughs> oh, yeah. climate crisis and what, what are we deciding to do let's burn off electricity to create fake money that's a that's the wisest decision in the world come on Come on, people. Well, I would say if if somebody wants to uh, drive blindfolded or stand at the edge of a, a waterfall uh, to get a selfie uh, and they're risking their own lives, there is part of me that's like, well, you know, if you're going to be that stupid. But uh, and I'm, I'm not serious about that. But like the problem is that they also endanger other people. So it's even yes, worse. That's right. Yeah. That's yeah. The, that's, they're so they're stupid and endangering other people, too. So, yes, don't don't at me. I, I'm not legitimately saying that people who take selfies by waterfalls deserve to die. I'm I'm just saying that it's a dumb thing to do and you shouldn't do it. It's wow. very, very dumb. Hey, that's really dark. So let me tell you about something nice. The fuzzy puppy Yay. update. Uh, before we go, we like to do something that's happy. And this is a great one. I want to tell you the story about a miracle puppy named Tony Hawk. Now, why is he? Aww. Why is this miracle puppy named Tony Hawk? That's because one day. Uh, earlier this month in Austin, Texas, there were some people walking around, uh, their construction workers, and they heard a puppy crying. And they're like, where is that puppy? And they couldn't find the puppy around them anywhere. And all of a sudden, a puppy fell out of the sky and landed near them. And they looked up to see a hawk flying away. This is the miracle wow. puppy who was caught by a hawk and was going to be carried off, but uh, apparently instead landed near the construction workers who took it to a veterinary clinic. It's a it was a one pound Chihuahua puppy had some punc- punctures from the hot hawk talons, no broken bones, uh, taken in. Uh, and for now, the puppy is na- is named Tony Hawk as a reminder of its daredevil nature as it flew through the sky uh, after being dropped by a hawk. So there's that, too. So hooray for the miracle puppy. And uh, yeah, watch out if you've got small pets that you don't want hawks or coyotes or whatever getting to them. They're but, seriously yeah. dangerous. Yeah, yeah, uh, they are. Man. Yeah. yeah, I don't think they'll take my 145-pound <laughs> yeah. or get, Yes, or get a larger dog. That would be, unfortunately, Tony Hawk yeah. just so little. So apparently appetizing for a hawk. So good job, Miracle Puppy. You saved you saved the day. It's awesome. Uh, and that brings us to the end of this episode of Download. Uh, Carolina Milanese, tell people where they can find you. They can find me on Twitter at Carol underscore Milanese, which is M-I-L-A-N-E-S-I. 
and then uh, on techpinions.com every week. Excellent, excellent. And Devendra Hardware, where can people find your stuff? Oh, all over the place. I'm on Twitter at, at Devendra. I write about tech and gadget. I podcast about movies and TV at slashfilm.com. Now also starting a new tech Q&A podcast nice. at nomoretech.net. Let's know with a K. <laughs> oh, nice. Okay. I go all I'm More competition. I'm fine with yeah. either one. It works. It works in both ways, mm-hmm. right? Excellent. I'm done. I'm done with tech. Excellent. And Stephen Hackett, thank you as always. You're welcome. And thanks to everybody out there for listening. We will keep watching the headlines so you don't have to. We'll see you next week.